Good morning, this is Dr. Ganguera, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. It's the 16th of December, getting really close to Christmas, and the year is, of course, 2022. This is going to be Lecture 3 on my Ethanol Use and Abuse series uh, to be covered uh, prior to the holidays. All right. I went through fatty acid oxidation, and I also have discussed some of the reactions in folic acid metabolism, how they are interlinked. It has to do with the level of NADH and FADH2, that's redox association. But it's also the flow of carbon, bioenergetics, because of that aspect. And then, of course, because we're talking about folic acid and acetylsimethionine, we're talking about methylation reactions, some of which, are, of course, are involved in normal metabolism, such as in uh, nucleotide biosynthesis uh, and phospholipid synthesis, in particular, for example, the production of phosphatidylcholine. But the methylation coming from acetylsimethionine that's nuclear in uh, subcellular event, of course, has to do with epigenetic phenomena. And we keep on re-emphasizing this because as it turns out, epigenetic profiling of gene expression is not rare, nor is it only associated with major changes in environmental cues. It's the normal progression of biochemical phenomena in all, in all eukaryotic cells. So that's why I bring it up, because if you look for it in the literature, you're going to find it. And it's often overlooked in classical biochemistry lectures. And uh, this isn't classical. This is authentic. <laughs> so let's talk about alcohol exposure. So some of these studies have been done in avian model study, in avian models, such as in chickens. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So alcohol exposure in avian models induces similar cardiac defects that we see in vertebrate animal models and in humans. It all has to do with developmental timing of the ethanol exposure and, of course, the concentration of that ethanol. So it's a qualitative and quantitative effect. So that means we have to discuss developmental biology. Now, recall that last couple of lectures, I've been moving in and out of that teratology paper where we were discussing the effect of ethanol on fetal alcohol syndrome disorders. So we're going to um, finish, I think, with this lecture, maybe one more, a discussion of that because it's critically important to understand how alcohol affects fetal development in humans as that gives us a window to, um, of course, the uh, syndrome itself, how alcohol consumption by the pregnant uh, woman can lead to neurological defects in her offspring. That's definitely true. It's part of the whole pro uh, whole understanding of that pathology. But it also gives us a window of the mechanisms by which that occurs. And so that's why I like to emphasize it on these uh, ethanol lectures. Ethanol is a neurotoxin, and it's a developmental poison. 
<clears throat> now, gastrulation is a critical and very important time signature during development in utero when it comes to alcohol exposure. Because it's during gastrulation, that very early stage of in utero development of the human fetus, where you can get uh, cardiac de defects. And they're linked to abnormal development of what's known as the second heart field that forms the right ventricle. The tricuspid valve outflow tract and also semilunar valves. So gastrulation is necessary in utero gestational developmental processes during week three of human development in utero, right? So gastrulation, what, what is it exactly? This is directly from developmental biology. It's the early developmental process when an embryo transforms from a one-dimensional layer of epithelial cells, that's known as the blastula, <clears throat> and then reorganizes into a multi-layered, multi-dimensional structure, and that's the gastrula. So all the way back to reptiles and also in birds and in mammals, you have what's known as a triploblastic organization. All of those are triploblastic organisms, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And in this process, gastrulation provides for three distinct tissue layers. And those are the endoderm, the mesoderm, and the ectoderm. And, and they basically comprise germ layers. And they're going to correspond to subsequent development of systems that will eventually present as organogenesis. <clears throat> now, in addition to that, to setting up the embryo for organ formation, this gastrulation phase, three weeks into in utero fetal development, so very early in utero development of the human fetus, of the baby, that gastrulation is going to provide a mechanism to develop this multi layered body plan that ultimately is going to give you an axis and a formational process is going to give you dorsal ventral and cranial caudal axes. So it's also termed anterior or rostral posterior, respectively, for those two systems. Now, the retention of the global left-right symmetry and the loss of bilateral symmetry in specific systems also has to be accounted for during this development. So you, you lose bilateral symmetry in some organs, such as the heart. Right? So after fertilization, you get the single-celled zygote and it undergoes multiple mitotic divisions of what's known as the blastomere to change into a two-celled, from a two-celled, excuse me, to a 16-celled morula. So this morula begins as a solid mass of totipotent cell lineages coming from these blastomeres, but then will undergo, during the next stage of development, 
a compaction and then a cavitation and it will transform into the blastula. Now that term is for non-mammals. In mammals, particularly in humans, we call it the blastocyst. Now in that blastocyst, you have two tissue layers which differentiate. The outer one is known as the trophoblast and the inner is a collection of cells simply called the inner cell mass or the ICM, right? So cells within the outer shell bind together via gap junction proteins and desmosomes to undergo a compaction, which I just mentioned, that forms a watertight ring. And that's called ultimately the trophoblast. Now the outer trophoblast will develop into structures that provide nutrients. So that's gonna help the embryo grow and it's also gonna help the embryo implant into the uterine lining so that it becomes ultimately part of the placenta. Now, beyond that, the trophoblasts are essential in the cavitation of that solid morula into a hollowed out clump of um, cellular organization that becomes the internal cavity. So trophoblast cells utilize the active transport of sodium ions and then generates an osmotic gradient of water, which is going to help fill the cavity known as the blastocell, the blastocell. So even, okay, so at, at that level of the trophoblast, right? And, and during uh, gastrulation, excuse me, even chicks, embryo, a, a chick, a developing chick exposed to ethanol at gastrulation will generate abnormal embryonic cardiophysiology. And that's going to, that early ethanol exposure at gastrulation in the chick model will lead to changes in the inhibitory wind signaling in heart development. Went at WNT, that's the major transcription factor during development, which we've talked about. So back to this description about development. The cells remaining after cavitation, blastocell formation, are, of course, going to be pluripotent. They have to remain pluripotent because they're going to be developing and then different, terminally differentiating into all the different cellular systems and then developing tissues into organs. So that's all involved in this intracellular mass of progenitor cells. And it's going to give rise then to all the distinctive features of what a fetus presents as. So rather than being an arrangement of a sphere of cells, the inner cell mass is, ac is actually um, grown onto only one side of that sphere because of the trophoblast development. So together with that trophoblast layer, you have the blastocell and now this inner cell mass. And that whole thing defines the blastocyst. So from zygote to blastocyst formation, the organism is surrounded by another layer of cells called the zona pellucida which is a layer of the extracellular matrix 
a lot of glycoproteins that essentially have a protective role and they can help prevent the implantation into a uterine tube. So during blastocyst formation, the zona pellucida begins to disintegrate from the blastocyst. And that allows that morula of cells to proliferate, differentiate, and then morphologically alter, eventually implanting now correctly into the uterine wall. So during the implantation, the trophoblastic layer, which surrounds this blastocyst, will continue to differentiate into two functional distinct layers. So the outer trophoblast is going to be known as the syncytiotrophoblast, and it, it's, going to, it's going to be responsible for the expression of genes that become digestive enzymes to assist in the implantation to the endometrium. So that layer will release a very important hormone called the human chorionic gonadotropin. And so that HCG is absolutely necessary for regulating progesterone secretion. And that protein, of course, is the protein that's recognized when people do a pregnancy test, progesterone. So the inner trophoblast layer, which is now called the cytotrophoblast, is a single layer of cells. And of course, it's surrounding that extra embryonic mesoderm. So when you look at the cytotrophoblast, you have this morula of ICM. And during the second week of human development, those ICM cells, those inner cell masses, okay, spread into a flattened tissue layer that ultimately will now differentiate into a two tissue layer. And that will contain what's known as the epiblast. These are columnar epithelial cells. And the hypoblast are below. And those are going to be the cuboidal epithelial cells, which are together known as the bilaminar disc. Once you get to the bilaminar disc, it sets up the dorsal ventral axis because that epiblast cell layer is positioned dorsal to the hypoblast. So you already have now this axis being generated. So the this is how development occurs. So the anatomical location of the bilaminar disc is found between the amniotic cavity and what's known as the yolk sac. So the cells of the epiblast will now conform to a semi-sphere known as the amniotic cavity, while the cells of the hypoblast will extend to surround that yolk sac. So on that hypoblast is a raised area of columnar cells which are known as the precordal plate. And that's the early, earliest delineation of the cranial from the caudal. Then you get development of that bilaminar disc, and that precedes gastrulation, or the end uh, during week three of development essentially transforms the human blastocyst into a multi-layered gastrula 
That's the gastrulation. I just told you the whole process. And the gastrula is going to have an endoderm, a mesoderm, and an ectoderm. So changes in normal placental development were noted in mouse models looking at ethanol exposure. And what results with that exposure is a higher placental resistance and what's known as an intrauterine growth restriction. So ethanol exposure, now that you've got the whole idea of this development, differentially misexpresses non-muscle myosin. And it's the non-muscle myosin two subunits, 2A and 2B. Now, those are known to be important for the placenta and for heart development. But what ethanol does is alter the expression of those proteins. Okay? So what happens is you get poor placental development because of its association with that ethanol effect of the intrauterine growth restriction. Right? And, of course, this is all linked up to fetal alcohol syndrome and with folic acid metabolism because it's all related to that um the step in in uh, folic acid biosynthesis which involves the transfer of the methyl group okay and so methylated tetrahydrofolate is then going to be erroneously generated early during ethanol-exposed mouse gastrulation. So ethanol will adversely affect the trophoblast cell migration. And what's been demonstrated in these studies is that that can be mitigated, that can be stopped by folic acid. So it means that just adding folic acid will turn on the folic acid cycle correctly so it ends up giving you the right oxidation state of the C1 groups in those different folates. You know, the, the methyl versus the methylene versus the methenyl versus the formamino, those different oxidation states of the C1 group, because you're now adding folic acid. The reason that occurs is because folic acid uptake is, remember I told you in the last lecture, is inhibited by that, by that uptake um, uh, a transduction across the membrane, right? So you don't get you don't get the ability to take up folic acid, and because of that, if you add folic acid directly to the system, you'll be able to repair the process. So ethanol intoxicates all of these stages, all of them. So decreased trophoblast migration. Of course, what's the result? What's going to happen there is you're going to alter normal placental development. And because of that, ethanol will have a direct effect on the heart development, the development of the heart tissue and the placenta. And that's going to be associated with lipid and folic acid metabolism. Now, we already mentioned how that works in terms of the redox between those two pathways. And also the fact that ethanol, because of alcohol dehydrogenase and acetaldehyde dehydrogenase, will make acetyl-CoA. And that acetyl-CoA then 
will be used for fatty acid synthesis. And the high levels of acetyl-CoA can alter the level of beta oxidation, obviously, because that's the product of beta oxidation. So if you inhibit beta oxidation, we talked about the enzymes, remember the tripartite enzyme involved in the, uh, the first three reactions of oxidation, right? The dehydrogenase, the, the hydratase, and the, the second dehydrogenase, the, the hydroxy uh, dehydrogenase. Remember those three enzymes, that core aspect of taking long-chain fatty acid and, and getting it to the stage where you can do the thiolase reaction to, to generate acetyl-CoA and make it two carbons shorter. That process then becomes inhibited. And because, it, because, it beca because of that inhibition, because of the introduction of errant acetyl-CoA from alcohol intoxication, you corrupt folic acid metabolism because the redox is um, corrupted in such a way that you can't carry out tetrahydrofolate reductase reactions. Okay, And that's going to then lead directly to changes in methylation pattern. Because if you get only the methyl THF, methyl tetrahydrofolate, how much of that methyl group will we transfer to methionine is associated with the redox in methionine synthesis via homocysteine, which again, we covered in the last lecture. Okay? That redox is really important. So you're, in, you're corrupting metabolism at the level of simple reduction oxidation. At the same time, you're inhibiting normal fatty acid oxidation for bioenergetics by introducing acetate to the system from ethanol. And also think about the uh, al alcohol dehydrogenase and acid haldehyde dehydrogenase contribution to the ratio of NADH to NAD. And that further alters then the redox of the system. You see? Okay. Because ethanol itself, during its metabolism, is going to alter the redox of the system. Plus, it's going to be providing a product, in this sense, instance, acetate, which will then be a sterified to coenzyme A, making the thioester, which can be available for fatty acid synthesis rather than allowing for fatty acid oxidation, which will generate ATP and also provide back the correct stoichiometry of FADH and NADH to be able to run the electron transport chain so that you get the reduction of molecular oxygen and water and you get ATP synthesis. So all of that gets corrupted just by ingesting ethanol. That's why ethanol is specifically so toxic because of its effect on redox, its membrane effect, which we talked about three lectures ago, or the, the first lecture on, on the, this uh, arc of lectures on ethanol. And now I'm telling you further that how folic acid and lipid metabolism is altered during this gastrulation phase in early human in utero development, thus leading to cardiac developmental uh, corruption, which is part of the fetal alcohol syndrome. Okay. So all that now is put together. I hope, I hope it's, uh,
clear to this point anyway. All right, so what else now? So, interestingly, if you use high-dose saturated fatty acids, such as palmitic acid, it's a dietary supplement to pregnant mice. At the beginning of alcohol exposure, post-conception, and you maintain that fatty acid as a supplement, you obtain normal placental and, yes, cardiovascular development as if it were normal, even with the exposure to ethanol. And that's similar to a dose used in the epidemiological studies that show a protective effect on cardiovascular systems in human pregnancy. Now, why is that? Because now you're adding fatty acid, which will counteract, because of its loading up to beta oxidation, the effect of the acetate generated from the ethanol. So you're titrating away the metabolism of ethanol. At the same time, you see, you're also blocking the alcohol dehydrogenase and acetylene dehydrogenase because you're generating high levels of NADH during the beta oxidation of fatty acids because of supplementation. So this, is, this now brings you all the way back to seeing the core of how lipid metabolism is so essential to understand the regulation of biochemical processes in humans. It's the core of it. So the idea is that embryonic alcohol exposure, for the reasons I just said, will alter, we'll just use the word alter rather than corrupt, but basically corrupts lipid metabolism and then how lipid metabolism regulates gene expression. And we've talked a lot about how lipids act as epigenetic markers for the expression of genes. Right. And part of that, now I'm going to tell you, is the level of acetate in the form of acetyl-CoA to be used for the acetylation of histones to make you chromatin in the nucleus. Number one. Number two, the amount of methyl groups that are available to generate acetylenosylmethionine from methyl tetrahydrofolate because those two systems are linked, you see? All right. So the genes we're looking at here, first of all, Remember, we we're talking about folic acid uptake. I told you there's a system in the membrane that's known as the folate receptor complex. And the gene for that is the FOLR1. So that's one of the genes that's involved in this chronic ethanol exposure. Another one is phospholipase C. Remember, that generates diacylglycerol. And also because of the high levels of inositol phosphates, you're going to generate IP3, and IP3 itself is going to modulate calcium flux from stores. So because of ingestion of ethanol, you're going to affect phospholipase C activity, therefore diacylglycerol and IP3 production, both of which act as secondary messengers to change what? Protein kinase activity and calcium mobilization which will also alter gene expression, right? All right. 
Now, these are going to link up to, down the road, to this WNT, this Wnt signaling. Right. Now, some of the enzymes in folic acid metabolism, where we talked about that are important here, are the 5-methyltetrahydrofolate homocysteine methyltransferase. That's that MTR1 gene. Okay, and basically that is methionine biosynthesis, right? Because it converts homocysteine to methionine in conjunction with fatty acid metabolism. Right? Now, this is going to get very complicated because we also have to introduce how glycine and serine play a role here. So two amino acids along with methionine are going to play a very important role in mitochondrial metabolism altering folic acid metabolism. So amino acid degradation pathways and synthetic pathways leading to changes in methionine synthesis, regulating folic acid metabolism in coordination with the redox from fatty acid oxidation. Okay, so that's ultimately where this whole thing goes. And that's why you have to remember, you've got the medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenases and the long-chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenases, which, of course, are core for mitochondrial beta-oxidation of fatty acids, which is the core bioenergetics for utilizing fatty acids as opposed to glucose. So the intersection of folate lipid metabolism is that folate uptake by means of that FOLR1 facilitates a folate-mediated one-carbon metabolic pathway, which, as we have, we've been talking and we've been demonstrating, is essential for methylation. So remember that methionine synthesis is then associated with acetonosylmethionine, and acetonosylmethionine is involved not only in nucleic acid synthesis,